All right, so I will move into our scripture reading today, which is from Acts 2, 14 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, good to be with you, whether you're here online or with us in person. Um, Sylvia, thanks so much for 
sharing your story today. That was deeply encouraging, and so grateful for that. It's a hard act to follow. Um, <laughs> so we are starting a four-week series today on our, our vision to renew our city to the gospel and our elements of gospel, community, and mission. And whether you, you're new here over the last few months and you're just kind of orienting yourself to Redeemer City, this is an invitation to really understand what we're about at Redeemer City. And then if you're here, you've been here for a while, you've been through a few vision series, I'll just say this, our hope is that this would renew our hearts to what God has called us to in the city. And so as we begin today, we begin with gospel, and um, I'll say this, it's kind of a little bit dangerous to begin with that word gospel here. And I'll say it for a couple of reasons. One is, some of you here, you hear that term, and you just put it in a religious bucket. Um, you immediately begin to think uh, for a moment, I'm not really religious. So what does this gospel have to do with me? You might even think the gospel is news that makes you religious. And what I want to tell you this morning to begin is actually this term gospel in its origin was actually not tied to anything of a religious nature. There's actually um, <clears throat> excuse me, an inscription uh, that read this at about the same time as Jesus. It said, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. <clears throat> it's a story of the birth and coronation of the Roman emperor. It's, it's news. This is what the gospel means. It's life-altering, epic-making news. And my hope today is that maybe you, you come in here, maybe you're watching online, and you kind of view yourself as non-religious or irreligious, I want you to understand something. This term gospel, it's actually, it's actually for you. It's both for the religious and the non-religious, okay? But the second danger about this term is those who are familiar with it, who probably show up here week after week. And here's, I'll, I'll ask this question. How big is your gospel? How big is the gospel to you? One gospel, or excuse me, one author, in kind of my own words, he put it this way, is the gospel merely a solution to your individual sin problem and a promise of heaven, or do we see and understand it on a cosmic, holistic scale? And of course, that which deals with our individual sin. So here's the deal. We think about this. If your gospel is huge, and that means not only does it change your eternal destiny, but it actually transforms 10 a.m. on Wednesday. And so this morning, we're going to be in Acts 2. It's the first sermon, other than one Jesus gave many times about the gospel. It's the first sermon given by Peter on this gospel. So let me pray and we'll get in. Father, this morning, um, I just pray that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of our hearts, may be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, right before this passage was read, excuse me, right, the event right before this passage, there's an event that prompts Peter's sermon. And it's this, it was Pentecost. It's the pouring out of God's spirit on the disciples of Jesus. It was a crazy moment in which they were actually enabled to speak in other languages. 
And the people around them are hearing them speak about the mighty acts of God in different languages, in their own tongue, in their own native tongue. And they actually begin to wonder, like, are these people drunk? And Peter reminds them, guys, it's only 9 a.m., you know? Like, I guess they knew, like, the 4 o'clock kind of, like, etiquette for drinking or something like that. Like, it's only 9 a.m. They're not drunk. But there's, there are two questions that are asked by this audience, both before and after Peter's sermon. And that's how I want to frame the text in our time today. And the first is this, what does this mean? And the second is, what should we do? And so this first one, what does this mean? Let me put it this way. Recently in our family, we've been watching or re-watching the Harry Potter series, the movies. Our, our youngest has been reading through the series. And in Harry Potter 6, one of the scenes, in the opening scenes, Dumbledore and Harry show up at a house looking for Horace Slughorn. And it's clear in this house that Death Eaters have turned the house upside down. There's a hole in the ceiling. There's furniture that's tossed to and fro. Um, there's a chandelier that's crashed to the ground, and it's all in pieces. And after a little bit of stumbling, they find Slughorn, masquerading as a sofa chair. And in the midst of the rubble, Dumbledore says this, well, I think we should put it back in order. And Dumbledore, you know, waves his wand, and in this kind of beautiful cinematography, everything gets put back in place. Books float back to the shelf. The chandelier that was shattered gets all the way put back together. It's this repair and restoration. It's this dynamic where the evil that had had its way in that room in the moment that someone entered it, there's a power that could restore all that had been lost. And the scene is not actually too far off from the storyline of Scripture. See that room in disrespair? Because of evil is a great metaphor, actually, for how the Scriptures describe this world. It's need for repair and restoration. We see it around us, a Category 4 hurricane, a global pandemic, an oppressive regime taking over in Afghanistan, um, or simply it's the broken relationships across the table in our homes. Or for some of us, it's the isolation, it's the aloneness, it's the estrangement that we feel mixed with fear from God. And see, in the biblical storyline, all of those pieces, those are actually evidences that something has gone terribly wrong. And the world and us in it are in need of repair and restoration. And so Peter, when he gets up to respond to the question, what does this mean? He begins to quote Joel chapter 2 in verse 17. He says this, and in the last days. Now you might just read that and skip over it, but that last days, that, that phrase is like a hyperlink. It's a loaded term. You see, the prophets like Isaiah and Micah spoke of a time in which God would pour out unprecedented blessing. A time in which God would bring about unprecedented judgment on evil that would transform this world, where it would result in peace and God's shalom and healing, an era of prosperity in which death 
and evil and suffering would be done away with. And so when Peter quotes, when he begins his sermon, and he says, in the last days, he is saying something, that the outpouring of God's spirit in that Pentecost means one thing, that the last days of God's repairing and restoration has actually begun. Look at verse 17. Peter says this, In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. You see, in the Old Testament, there were moments where God would pour out his spirit on individuals in different times and different places. But Joel said there's a time coming in which all of God's people will have God's spirit within them and poured out. And so as Peter's beginning to explain what's happening, he's saying, guys, look at this. This is the inauguration. This day has actually arrived. And then Joel goes on to, or, and then Peter begins to quote the rest of Joel in verses 19 and 20. And he says this, And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, and the vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. You see, not only in those last days would God bring about unprecedented blessing with the outpouring of his spirit, but there would actually be judgment on evil to bring about justice. And we'll talk about that a bit more in a moment, but what I want you to understand here is Peter begins his opening sermon. His opening point is simply this. This God who made a promise long ago to bring about unprecedented blessing and judgment, to bring about rescue and repair in this world, it's actually here. It's actually begun. But the second part of Peter's sermon is he walks his audience through the coronation of a king. Now, this may sound strange to some of us here. What does this have to do with this whole rescue and repair operation? But for the Jewish audience, this was very clear. They had known through various promises and the stories of their past that God was going to bring about this rescue and repair through a long-awaited king that would come. But, let me put it this way, the head-turner, the kind of Copernican revolution for those in the audience was who Peter said the king was. And we actually see it in verse 36. Listen to what Peter says. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is kind of Peter's drop the mic moment, you know? This is where he just kind of steps back and says, what are you going to do about that? Because think about it for a moment. Peter has just claimed that the long-awaited king, the one that's to bring about unprecedented repair and restoration to this world, was the one that was crucified weeks ago. 
I can't even begin to tell you how backwards and upside down that would have been for their headspace. Which is why Peter begins back in verse 22 unpacking the story of Jesus and how he got here and how he became king. So let's go there for a moment. In verse 22, Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This, notice he says Jesus of Nazareth, this, this back alley town. It's that one that, I think it was Nathan said, like, can anything good come from there? And Peter says, no, no, that Jesus, from that town, he was attested to you. By mighty works. You know some of them, right? Feeding 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Speaking to a storm and the storm actually listening. Raising a widow's son of Nain from the dead. That Jesus, that Jesus of Nazareth, you know him. He's the long-awaited king. But then he goes on in verse 23, and he says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter reminds them, this Jesus, this king, you crucified him. And yet he also throws in there, this wasn't apart from God's plan. Got to plan this all along. But then he goes on to more in verse 24. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He makes the claim that Jesus is no longer dead, but he is bodily risen. And then he quotes Psalm 16. David wrote this psalm. At the end of Psalm 16, uh, it, it says this, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter knows everybody there knows this psalm. And he goes, guys, we know where David's tomb is. We can go there right now. Don't you understand? When David wrote this psalm, there was someone else he was speaking of. And Peter is saying, he has risen. And we've seen him in verse 32. He says, we have actually seen him. And then verse 33, Peter says this, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He says, this Jesus, who was crucified, who was risen, he's now exalted. He's at the foremost place of honor with God the Father. And notice here how he mentions that actually Jesus is the one who's actually poured out the Spirit. He's trying to explain all that you've seen at Pentecost. Jesus, the one who's at the right hand of the Father, he's the one who actually has poured it out. 
It's evidence that Jesus is the one who's exalted. And then he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's this coronation psalm. And here we have King David as the author. And when King David says, the Lord said to my Lord, he's saying this. David's calling his future descendant, my Lord, which he's saying is assuming that even this one who's to come is going to be greater than me. So here it is. Here's the life-altering gospel news. It's this. God made a promise long ago that he'd bring about unprecedented blessing and judgment that would bring about the restoration and repair of this world. And he has brought it all about through the person and work of Jesus. The one who was crucified, the one who is risen, and the one who is now both Lord and Christ. That's the news. So what do we do? And that's the question actually in verse 37. There's this question, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Let's pause for a moment here because the effect of that news says it was they were cut to the heart. Let me, let me just offer just a couple different ways that that cut them to the heart. The same ways in some sense that need to have cut us to our hearts today. The first is this, it radically altered their view of themselves. Think about this for a moment. For the original audience, they had been waiting for centuries for God's deliverance and for the long-awaited king. And now Peter has just told them that they have actually been responsible for the killing of that king. They realize in that moment, right? that they're enemies, that they're on the wrong side of this story, right? And here's the deal. This morning, rightly so, we'd probably say, I have no responsibility in the death of Jesus. I wasn't there. I didn't, I didn't say crucify him. But actually, the rest of the scriptures actually place us in the same camp as those who did. In other words, for example, in Romans 5, Paul writes and says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet enemies, we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And I know maybe perhaps some of you right now are saying, but I'm a pretty decent person, <laughs> right? Um, I'm in church, pastor, right? Or maybe you're watching online. You may not even, put it this way, you may not even know if there's a God, but even though you don't know if there's a God, you're doing your best, right? And so to hear that you might be an enemy might sound just odd or off, or how does that relate? One of my favorite ways of um, explaining this, Tim Keller puts it this way. He says something like this, imagine a widow has a son, and he raises this, she raises a son through good schools and a good university, and it's a great expense to herself. And as she's raising the son, 
She says, here's the deal. Son, I want you to live a good life. I want you to always tell the truth. I want you to always work hard. I want you to care for the poor. And after the young man graduates from college, he goes off into his career and life. And he never spends time with his mother. He never speaks to his mother. Oh, he may send her a card on her birthday, but he never phones or visits. What if you asked him about his relationship with his mother? And he responded, no, I don't have anything to do with her personally, but I always tell the truth. I always work hard. I care for the poor. I've lived a good life. And that's, that's all that matters, right? Would you be satisfied with that? <laughs> all the moms in the room are like, no way, right? <laughs> no way. And this is the point. It, it isn't enough for the man to lead a moral life without having any kind of relationship with her. She gave him all he has, all she has, all he has, and he owes her his love and loyalty. And Keller writes this, he says, if there is a God, you owe him literally everything. You owe him more than a morally decent life. He deserves to be at the center of your life. In short, just simply living a morally decent life is not letting God be God. It's another way of you being Savior and Lord. Listen, for the news to cut to our heart, it has to radically alter our view of self. Has it done that? But secondly, to cut to the heart it has to radically um, change our view of Jesus. Think for a moment of those Jews as they heard this inaugural sermon by Peter. Just weeks ago, Jesus was crucified. That meant one thing. He's not the Messiah. It means you backed the wrong horse. In other words, there's, you, you followed the wrong one. But now as Peter stands up and has explained the outpouring of God's Spirit, and through Scripture and eyewitness testimony, he is unfurling a dramatic transformation of who Jesus is. He's a crucified and risen king that changes our view of Jesus. Does it not? It, it changes our view of how actually this rescue and repair happens. You see, think about it for a moment. In that day, they were hoping that this Messiah, this long-awaited king, would simply wipe out the Romans. They were the oppressors. And yet the dramatic irony in the story of Jesus and what he's done is this, that the evil that undergirds all that is wrong in this world is far more deeper and pervasive than that group over there. Right? It's actually the very thing that cuts to each one of our hearts. Which is why Jesus, in his first coming, in order to end evil, without ending us, offered himself up on the cross. In Hebrews 10.26 says this, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Remember in Joel when it talked about the moon turning to blood and, and everything just pouring down judgment. Do you understand, if you go back to the Gospels when Jesus is crucified, everything goes dark. It's a symbol of God's judgment. 
And yet he rises bodily and victoriously over the grave, defeating death itself. And he's exalted to rule and reign over all things. You see, this, this good news, it, it radically alters our view of Jesus. And let me ask you this morning, who is Jesus in your evaluation? Is he just a moral teacher? Or is he just a prophet? Or is, as he says in this passage, the crucified and risen King and Lord? If it's cut to the heart, if you're cut to the heart, then you understand what's coming next because verse 38, this is how Peter responds. What should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Miroslav Volf defines it this way. It means to resist the seductiveness of the sinful values and practices and to, the, and to let the new order of God's reign be established in one's heart. It means to turn from our self-salvation project to be baptized. I just mentioned this a while ago, but it's this, right? It's the outward manifestation of what's happened on the inside of a reliance upon Christ. It's a brand new identity, what he's done, you've done, right? That's what it means. When he's crucified, you've been crucified because of your faith in him. And there's this promise that you'll be forgiven, that he's merciful. And not only that, but the gift of the Holy Spirit, which means the future, God's transforming future, actually rushes into the present, into your life, and transforms you from the inside out. That's why 2 Corinthians 5 would say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So where are you this morning? Some of you, maybe you're unsettled by this news. I mean, if it's true that Jesus really is the crucified and risen King and Lord, that's unsettling. Because it means you're not the captain of your ship. You're not the master of your domain. One of my favorite stories of someone coming to this realization is the one of C.S. Lewis. In the story of him going from, becoming, from being an atheist to becoming a Christian, he writes about the night he finally became a Christian. And listen to what he said. You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalene. That's one of, the, one of his offices. Night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second, from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. And then he writes, That which I had greatly feared had at last come upon me. And in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and I admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I love that last line. Do you understand that? Do you hear that for a moment? Let me call you. If you're not a Christian this morning, 
even if you're reluctant, do you understand you can still come and bend the knee to the one who will welcome you graciously into his kingdom to the sacrifice of his son? And that rescue and repair operation actually will transform you from the inside out. It did for Lewis. You heard it in Sylvia's story. It did for her. It can do that in your life. Let me say this too. Some of you this morning, you're here every week. That doesn't necessarily mean that you've trusted. Does that make sense? You've got to understand that. No, today, you can put your trust in him and be welcomed in and forgiven and the Holy Spirit will be given to you. For others of you this morning, this is news you've responded to. What do we do today with that news? Let me offer three brief things and it'll be done. Let us receive it with joy. Think about this for a moment. Since Jesus is the crucified, risen Christ and Lord, who has laid down his life for us and conquered sin and death and the evil one, there is actually nothing that can defeat you, that can actually hurt you. Do you understand that? All your anxieties, all your worries, do you know that? Let us rejoice in that. But let's also come with confidence. In other words, are you full of shame this morning? Are you full of guilt this morning? Do you know you can come to this one with your failures and your sins even now? And that you're his? That he's defeated everything? He's covered it all? But lastly, and I'll say this to Redeemer City, let us not merely offer him a portion of our lives. This gospel is too big for two hours on a Sunday. This good news, let us respond with all of who we are and let us ask him by his grace and power and the work of the Spirit to work that in us afresh so that we might be a people who are a sight and a signal to this community that the last days really have begun. God is rescuing and he is repairing all that has been lost. And there is hope and it is found in him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, we pray and we ask you by your spirit to be at work in the midst of our lives. Lord, you know our failures and our sins and our proclivities to run from you. And Lord, because of this news, would you help us to turn, to trust, to bring all of who we are to all of who you are and know that you're more than sufficient to meet us. We ask you for your help, even in this series, Lord. We pray that you would take this series and that you would multiply it, that you would use it. So, Lord, others in this community would begin to wonder, would begin to see of what you can do because of what you have done. And we ask this in your name. Amen.